podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to episode two of our Buzz version of a spoiler special for True Detective season four, episode two this time. I am Trev Denny. I'm still here in my field in beautiful rural Ireland. And I'm joined, of course, by the man who is the man of the, of the originator of this show, Dave Hendrick. I'm very delighted to be starting another chat about this very interesting TV series. How are you, Dave? I'm good, mate. I'm good up here on the side of the mountain. The wind has subsided. The electricity eventually came back on. The internet decided to start working again. And uh, if it had stopped raining now, I'd be absolutely in my element. You see, no fucker believes us. We go on, uh, you and I, with our sob stories about rural uh, Ireland and Wi-Fi and uh, miserable weather conditions and all the rest of it. And people don't quite believe us. They think we're just uh, churning some Irish myth out. But no, it's very true. Uh, all it takes is some semi-serious weather conditions and we're screwed. <laughs> I saw a, f- a person in Kerry today who is still without electricity after it went off on Sunday. So, you know, that just speaks to the the level of backwardsness in certain parts of rural Ireland, which which you live in and which I live in. Kerry is a different animal altogether. Um, but, yeah, there's there's people in the properly, like we say rural, you're 35, 40 minutes from Dublin. I'm 45 minutes from you, so about an hour 20 from Dublin. We're not as rural as it gets. People that are, are as rural as it gets here, they go through some times when there's bad weather. They do. And it's interesting because it kind of ties in here. I was thinking about it a lot. Um, you, you, you're not going to believe this, mate, but I'm currently obsessing with putting myself even more rural. I was looking at a little place today. It's literally a little place surrounded by rock and little stone walls and greenery, uh, a little bit of patch of green land around the little house. And you're basically on the water. And for me, that's the dream. And oh, yeah. um, uh, I know you're similarly inclined. But the harshness of the weather conditions, as we thought, the darkness and the 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 uh, the night country, as we thought, very much featuring, continuing to feature into episode two here. I listened back to our episode one because I'm like, I don't listen back to podcasts anymore. I'm sure you're the same. I can't remember the last time I did this, but I'm very anxious that we do this right. And you'll have to bear with us listeners. This is a new venture for us in many ways. So there's certain cadences and rhythms that we're going to find our way into. What we tried to do last time out was throw as much stuff at the wall as humanly possible. But we may settle into a little bit of a rhythm here. There are six episodes, but so much happened in this one, Dave. I think it's going to be hard not to be throwing a lot at the wall again. Can I just ask you at the start, are you still all in on this? Are you finding yourself raising an eyebrow? Again, of course, if you've been like myself looking at the critiques and the critics and the various uh, opinions that have been expressed on it, there are they are a mixed bag. Um, where are you still? Are you still high on it? Are you still confused? Are you in? Where are you? Oh, I've loved the two episodes. I've absolutely yeah. loved them. I, I thought episode two built perfectly on episode one. I thought we got plenty of reveal. We learned a lot more about a number of important characters, some present, some past, who'll play big roles. I I'm struggling with anybody having major issues with this show so far if you've got small critiques fair enough fair enough everybody's entitled to those but anybody who's outright writing this series off or 
coming out and saying it's dreadful. I, I just can't find where they're coming from. Yeah, there's a there's there's an element of I think um, edge lord about a lot of that criticism. Um, some people taking exception to the uh, supernatural element, which seems to be very much to the fore here. Obviously, you've got your your cynic, your um, trust the science type in Liz Danvers at the heart of it, and then she's paired up with with Navarro and is going to be and has been in the past. And Navarro is very much of the region and very much uh, in touch with. The, uh, the 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 customs and obviously the rich spiritual tradition. Listen, we're Irish. We know all about that. Mm. You would not, you would not cut down a fairy tree on that sprawling estate of yours because you're not an idiot. And you'd also be questioning yourself as you were driving around it in your in your wee tractor uh, and giving it wide berth with your uh, chainsaw because you'd be saying, "Why am I not cutting that down? Because it's in the middle of the way." But you're not an idiot is why you're not cutting it down, because there are things other than uh, I, I firmly believe that. Uh, and I don't know where you stand on all of that thing. If you're a very hard, hard bitten scientific materialist yourself, but certainly the story seems to be going that way. And I think that's what's getting up the snout of a few people who just wanted to be, you know, uh, nuts and balls detective stuff. I think people also just want to come across as clever than they actually are when they make some of these critiques. And look, as you said, we're Irish. So we've grown up in a country with traditions, like you said, things of the, you know, the fairy, fairy trees, fairy forts. People having the cure is is a massive thing in this country, especially in rural areas. Um, less so, obviously, in Navan, you wouldn't know many people in the town that would have the cure of anything. But once you go out into the countryside, out towards where you live, out towards Kilberry, Wilkinstown, it becomes more prevalent. And certainly since I've moved up here, there's more and more people you get told about that have the cure for different ailments, whether it's, you know, a simple thing like warts. Yes. Fluid behind the knee, whether it's asthma, allergies, whatever. There are, there is that belief that these cures are, are passed down through generations and there's a respect that's shown to those people, whether or not you believe that it's some sort of hokum or whatever. These people are still to be respected because it's an Irish tradition. It's an Irish culture. Likewise, in Alaska, these are traditions and cultures that are generations deep. Yeah, and that's the thing, whether you believe them or not, the people there believe them. And in this show, the people believe in this, the locals believe in this. Mm. There's the frank way in which the delivery guy says, come on, kid, you, this is Ennis. You see people, right? Yeah. You see dead people. Exactly. Um, uh, the, 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 um, there's something about these cleaning ladies there into some dark crap in the background. I know it. The, there's a little throwaway shot. We'll get to it if we get to it. I'll mention it now in case we don't, where one of them... She's walking past the camera and you can just see her pulling a face, kind of a shit, uh, are they on to us face? And I'm I, already I'm wondering, is there more to it than that? But absolutely, you've got Rose Agano and that, that wonderful story there with Travis, or oh, more of whom later, because there's an exciting link into Travis, I'll tell you mm. that, uh, which no doubt you'll be into. But yeah, it's, it's fantastic. I'm delighted you mentioned there's a, there's a couple of fantastic one-liners in this episode that we'll get into. One of them is that one you mentioned, this is Ennis, you see people. Yeah. Does, doesn't yeah. add to it. Yeah. You just no know need. what he means. There's yeah. no need to go any further. This is no. Ennis, you see people. And whatever's, whatever's happened to, to Clark, 
that evidence, hard evidence on the film of the juddering, of the she's awake, that's mm. all you need, right? There he is. There's something very wrong with that lad. We know he's gone uh, off the rails a little bit, etc. But there's a very unnatural movement there. And again, you know, I loved that they started tying some stuff up that was very, they threw so much at the wall in episode one that now we're starting, starting to get into the case. And I don't know about you, before we start breaking down the episode sort of um, episodically in terms of incident by incident and, and, and hopefully going off on tangents from there. What I loved about it was that they do start to engage with the mystery now. And I'm loving this motif of you're not asking the right question. Yes. I think that's really good, isn't it? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And, you know, with, with Danvers, it's clear she's, you know, a bit of an unlikable character. She's not very popular. There's a lot of people have issues with her. But when it comes to her work, she's very diligent, very dedicated. But she's also a teacher. She's trying to teach Peter Pryor yeah. how to look at things as a detective, how to ask the right questions. And then we see with um, Navarro later on, she repeats that same line. Danvers would say, "What's you're not asking the right question. Yeah. And it shows like she's obviously worked under before. It's that process. And for me, it, it just it strengthens the character of Danvers because you see that she is singularly focused on her work. Everything else, personal relationships, her relationship with her daughter, everything else has fallen by the wayside because her priority has been her work. And she wants to continue that work after she's gone. She wants the next generation in the shape of Peter Pryor, etc., to be able to do things the right way. You get the feeling, don't you, that a bit like Marty and Rust in, in season one, mm. she's a bit of a car wreck of a human in many ways. Oh, yeah. You know, like it, it, less less people would loathe her if she'd stop sleeping with literally everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but this is part of why I think some people are finding issue with the show because we've got oh, a strong no doubt. female lead yeah. no doubt. who is routinely having affairs and going for booty calls with Captain Ted Connolly, played by Christopher Eccleston. We also see Navarro go for one of her own. Um, so there's, there's like, if it was men doing that, there wouldn't be an eyelid batted. Oh, but because got, it's women doing it, people are getting upset about it. I got some unbelievably lovely responses, and thank you if you are one of the ones who... Sent stuff encouraging myself and Dave on the back of the last show and Saltburn came out a bit later. And again, good response to that. And, you know, we're, we're, again, we're ironing stuff out. You'll have to bear with us. We'd like it to be a lot more in your face when things are landing and dropping and being obvious and stuff like that. And we're just we're working some stuff out between ourselves and, and, and in terms of getting the, the um, flagging up of all these things right with the channel and all the rest of it. So, you know, early days and we'll get there. But thank you for that very positive responses that we were given. Uh, we were given. There was one solitary lad uh, who waded in with exactly that ilk of response, referring to either us or the podcast or the show as woke nonsense, uh, because you know, of course, uh, you're going to get those lads. And I, like I said to you, I've no, int I really do not want to get into that nonsense. I really don't. And if I thought this story was uh, really 
suffering because someone was trying to hammer home some agenda that men were shit and that women are the best or some some you know infantile you know sort of uh, binary nonsense like that i would absolutely mm. come out and say it it's not that ca- it's not the case this is a fantastically made show so far and we should get into it because if we don't, we're going to miss stuff and people are going to want to hear about the bits and bobs and hear the hints. They were loving that last week in terms of the little things that we were able to pick out. Easter egg wise, let's get into it. So we obviously have our, our little flashback at the start to what becomes known as wonderfully, Dave, what becomes known as the Corpsicle, which I mean, that is a fantastic is, name. It's genius. Oh, like it, it, it that alone was worth it now i'm going to come back later on and if i don't remind me please to the x-files because we really need to because our friend isa was either hugely inspired by or had the exact same creative spirits visitor in the night because there's something very strange going on there but anyway we have a little flashback to, you know, the last episode and were reminded that poor Annie Kay was stabbed 32 times with star-shaped wounds. And that's that's repeated in the in the flashback. So I can only assume that's going to be relevant in the in the future. And Liz has her shit bowl to deal with. And we see the clothes and the shoes neatly arranged. And then we get straight into the horror of this opening sequence. We're all out in the ice again where we ended the last episode, Dave. And they're surrounding the corpsicle. Um, and... You know, we're getting to see and, and be reminded of the, the horror. This this is just absolutely grim, dark. It, the, the concept is, is hideous. The fact that they died in such pain and panic and trauma is hideous. But they make it worse. You've got them, all the lads, um, milling about. And again, we get to see how unpopular and yet, respected that Danvers is because yeah. when they're allowed to take selfies with the, 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 the bodies and stuff like that and mucking about and heading in with chainsaws way too close to the bodies, she just lets a roar out of her and everybody calms down and she's just, she actually reminds me of me at work when I'm just like, if, if, if there's a little bit too much whispering going on or something, I'm the most impatient man in the world. And I often let a little minute or two or second or two go past. I'm just like, fuck's sake. That's just exactly I, I, her, her absolute disdain for these gombeans around her. I love it. Like you said earlier on, she's clearly very good at what she does. When she's in the zone here, you're getting vibes of rust off her in terms of she's absolutely immersed in the process. And Dave, the horror. One of the mooks, one of her uh, attendants there, lops the arm off (laughs) a lad only for him to start screeching into the air. He's still alive. I mean, this has dark echoes of seven and all sorts of things. Was it the sloth corpse? But, you know, where it's still alive and you're like, oh, my Christ. And the the loudness of the scream is very piercing. (laughs) And it's at that time that they break for the the credits what a start man yeah it's it's a fantastic start and like you said danvers is in complete control of what otherwise would be complete chaos and that's that kind of goes some way to explaining why she is the way she is because she realizes that many of these people they're not they're just not serious people they're not taking their job seriously one of them's taking a selfie Others are just wading in. 
it's very much a microcosm of modern society. You know, people being obsessed with showing that they were there or getting something for their social media or not taking the care to go about their task in the proper way. And she, like Rust, is that more old school, process orientated, do things by the book. And like you said, she just lets a roar out of her and everybody settles down, proving that they can do their jobs. They were choosing not to do the jobs, which is where much of her frustration seems to come from. But when when that piercing scream comes out like that is that it, I, I can see why certain people who, who'd rather this be just, you know, a, a by the numbers, nuts and bolts police procedural show might take umbrage with that. But I think it adds to it. I think that that adds to the show. It gives you that eeriness. It gives you that sense of horror, that sense of science fiction, the sense of the supernatural, etc. I thought that's a, I, th- I thought it was a really, really strong opening. And then we go into the credits and that song, which is Billie Eilish, it's quite chilling. Mm. It's quite I mean, chilling. And it, 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 it's like, I don't know much about Billie Eilish, to be honest. I don't really know anything of her music, but I, I had assumed she was some sort of, you know, teen pop punk type of, uh, you know, that's just my assumption out of ignorance more than anything else. But that song is, is it's haunting. It is. And like I said, at a later date, when there's not quite so many things to engage with in an episode, if that ever happens, I do have a lot that I want to talk to you about in terms of the lyrics, the credit sequence, what was inspired in terms of the story, all um, openly acknowledged by um, Issa Lopez as well. So that's going to be uh, something we'll come back to for sure. And I, I want to say this before I let it slip. The, the 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 X-Files thing, I can't let it run. I can't let it go without mentioning it because some X-Files fans were getting a bit pissy because it seems to be a bit of a pastiche of a couple of old plots. I think in the early season, season one, uh, episode eight is called Ice. And you have them hanging about Mulder and Scully in icy uh, Cape, Alaska at a research facility 250 miles north of the Arctic Circle. Uh, the Arctic Ice Core Project are the lads who are responsible for drilling into the ice sheets, taking out cylinders of ice for climate analysis, like the guys obviously in, in Salal, and they have been found strewn about the halls of the, of the, the facility brutally killed. Then flash forward to the most recent movie, the lovely reboot that happened in recent times for fans of the show and fans of the characters, uh, X-Files, I want to believe. Now, that even looks the same. It's got the same kind of green and blue filters on it. It's absolutely incredible how the parallels there, if you look at, at stills, you've got exactly the same setup. A horrible mutilated body pile buried in the snow and ice and you've got Mulder and Scully walking around you've got the lights you've got you've got people milling around in FBI jackets doing the business it's incredible the setup is so similar and then again to add further to the X-Files inspiration I have a page here uh, like a straight page from a comic with about eight or nine frames on it and again it's the same stuff so listen Say what you like about originality or not originality and how it's hard to be original. But there are definitely sources of inspiration here. And it'd be silly of us not to acknowledge it because otherwise people will be saying it. And um, I don't know if I feel 
that strongly about anyone ripping off ideas. I've always had this thing, Dave, where I think ideas and originality are slightly overrated because oftentimes the reboots of them or the reinvention of them or people taking them and going off in their own way with them uh, can be just as inspirational. Um, I, I don't know that I feel that offended by someone being heavily inspired by a previous plot line or concept. I'm not sure where you stand on that. I always think that the best form of flattery is imitation. And when you can openly doff the cap to other creators, I, I think it's nothing that should ever be criticized. And I think that's what's happened here. I think Issa Lopez has been quite open in the fact that she has been heavily influenced by other mediums and, you know, other programs, other actors, other directors, other writers, whatever. And we've seen, you know, little little nods to people along the way. And if they've taken part of an idea from a show as big and as widely acclaimed as the X-Files and decided to use that idea and spin it a different way, I don't see any issue. It's yeah. not like they've just blatantly ripped it off and they've got a guy and a you know a man and a woman going out and investigating it and walking walking around and and they're not following the same storyline. There's just a similar storyline with you know similar features. I, I don't see an issue with it. I really don't. Like you said, it's very hard to be original in the year 2024. Yeah, and I I think it's probably the fact that it's it's as on the nose as. In the X Files, thirty days of night, <laughs> right? There's actually one character who says, uh, "It's actually, uh, it's, 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 it's Mulder." Says we've been on a lot of murders, Scully, and for the life of me, I can't recall one involving a twenty-five foot human popsicle. It's quite on the nose. And in that same one, uh, a, a limb gets ripped off one of the frozen bodies. So I can see where people are going with that and fair play them. The thing is. You won't be the only person that's noticed the, the, the similarity, right? So others will talk about this as well. People will listen to this. People will listen to other people talk about this show. They'll hear mention of the X-Files. And potentially what that does for the X-Files is it gains them a new audience. Because personally, I, I didn't watch the X-Files when it was on. It's not a show that I'm familiar with. Now I have an interest in potentially going and watching it. So... It doesn't hurt the X-Files in any way. In any, if anything, it's going to amplify the X-Files and potentially lead to more interest in that show. So everybody's winning here. Absolutely. That scene you mentioned between Pryor and um, Danvers, I want to touch on it now because we may not get back to it. And it's where she is sort of teaching him the ropes and teaching him how to think in that kind of Socratic way. Uh, but... I do love the fact that, again, there's another thing that was triggering a very strong thought in my mind here, and it's clearly set up, and uh, both Danvers and Pryor are talking about it, and he impresses her with his knowledge of this particular situation, because the question is, why are they all naked, right? Uh, of course, then, there's obviously evidence that they've been eating the ends of their own fingers and stuff mm. like that. It's, it's particularly gruesome. But the question is, why are they all naked and all i could think of last week and i wanted to say it last week and all i could think of this week 
especially when they started explaining it. Well, you know, hypothermia, it leads to this sort of, um, you know, temporary madness and you have this physical desire to remove your clothing. It's kind of uh, counterintuitive, but this is what happens. All I could think of was the story of the Dalatov Pass, which is um, where these Russian hikers, I think in the 50s, um, went off on a little jolly up and again were discovered in various states of undress away from their camp. And for ages, it has been a source of mystery. What happened there? And again, that can't be something that our show writers here were unaware of. It's a very well-known story. If you and I were doing a conspiracy podcast it would have been in the first 10 or 15 that i'd have suggested for us because it's that well known of a tale but it is a mad concept that that's what people do under those uh, Mm. circumstances um and again i just wanted to mention it because other people will be thinking well is anyone going to mention the dilative pass or dilative pass uh, incident and i just wanted to flag it up there let's move it along because we we want to keep to our time limit here Bryce is the science teacher in the local school. Mm. <laughs> Just so happens Liz has had a go off him as well. And she goes over there to talk to him about what's going on. He fills her in. Interestingly, it's very like what I just described the boys were doing. They're taking the, the course. But Dave, this is where it gets really interesting. The lads may have discovered, I know it's a trope, but they may have discovered a cure for cancer. Yeah. Yeah, they're trying to recreate a chromosome that's been believed to be extinct. And I found that scene really interesting because we get obviously introduced to a new character. Danvers walks in. She tells all the kids to leave, go home. The teacher tells them to stay in their seats. And they don't listen to him. They listen to her. Now, that's in part because students will do anything to get out of class. And also because they're probably more more afraid of her than they are of their own teacher. Then we find out that there's the personal relationship between the two of them, which, you know, in, in, in a small town like that, there's limited access to that type of behavior. So it makes sense that there would be one or two um, incidents that might have occurred between consenting adults. But he digs into the... Into, he gives us explanation as to what they were doing. What is this? What is this research study? What are they doing? But what I found, Trev, what I found most interesting was when he said to her, "It was never going to work." They could have been out there for decades. It was never going to work. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. and again, that that is something that you know is kind of a nod to the world that we live in, where huge sums of money are being spent on research and development for things that are never going to work and i wonder was was it more was it kind of a nod at that at governments spending for i mean we live in a country where they're currently building a national children's hospital and have been for years and the cost of it has overrun from i think 500 million to well over 2 billion now you know so is it just a nod to that? Is that what Issa Lopez is telling us here? Like, look, this is another one of these government schemes, government funded operations. I know they say it's funded by an NGO as we get further in, but this is just more wasted money that could potentially go in a different direction. Um, I found that scene to be very interesting, quite informative. And it does just start to open up the picture for you. 
It does. And, you know, there's endless, again, to continue a thread here, endless conspiracy chat about what is going on in Antarctica, a place where all sorts of bizarre treaties and pacts are signed, a place where people have made visits. Uh, Everyone who you can imagine has been there and there at some point. And so it's that's something that's very, very interesting. Of course, that's the other end. Right. Uh, But this place not so famous for its conspiracies. Um, And I think what's really interesting about this particular part of the world is it's so bloody unforgiving. And it makes you wonder why someone like Rose is living where she's living and why she continues to live that kind of a life. Like, let's not forget the first time we meet Rose Agano, she is gutting a wolf. Yeah, who, who who seems to momentarily spark back into life in the same way that Clark did with Little Judder. Um, and just as he does that, as the creature does that, we see Travis. And this is where we're going here. I want to go to this next because this is probably my favorite sequence out of the show um, for so many reasons. Um, we basically see... Navarro going to have a chat with Rose and Rose and her speak very frankly of seeing the dead um, that uh, Navarro's sister does the same and apparently her mother did before her. They speak about it in a way that's matter of fact. And I think that's probably getting up the snouts of some of those people we talked about earlier on this absolute acceptance of the supernatural and when you have our delivery man later on and several others and um there seems to be this acceptance of a sort of a witchy behavior going on by some of those um cleaners and stuff like that in their spare time it does seem as if we are very much being told that this is part of the makeup of the society that we're in so accept it be it's part of the story now um I love the way she says to Travis, uh, she says, the fucker only comes when he wants something. Uh, and, you know, th- this visit, this last visit was obviously to point out the corpsicle. Yes. Uh, to bring her to bring her to, to, to see them. Uh, we learn that Travis's name is Travis Cole. So I'm going to throw a few things here at you. I want to get uh, just to, 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 to tee up. Obviously, this is fantastic stuff. And I think it's without question now that that is what we kind of weirdly suspected had an inkling about and didn't say anything about in the last time that Travis Cole, we find out his surname here is more than likely going to prove that to be Rust Cole's father in season one, Rust talks about spending some time in the Arctic with his dad, that he had some strange ideas. Uh, we'll come back to Rust later on. We'll come back to the symbolism, symbolism tying it to this uh, season to season one later on, uh, including, as you mentioned earlier on, the Tuttles. But let's just talk about this little scene because Ro- Rose sticks on a Tim Buckley song um, which is the song of the siren, which again, nerd boy here noticed because it's uh, it's a song that has been associated with witchy behavior. Let's just put it that way. Um, and as she's talking about seeing the dead and how this happens all the time around Ennis, she comes out with what I think is the line of the show. Uh, and remember, I, I, it took me a while to put this together, but the language here is fantastic. 
Ennis is a mining town. Now, I need you to remember Ennis is a mining town. What do, you, what do you do when you go down to the ground? You are mining through what? And then listen to this quote from uh, from Rose. And this is before Rose lights up her joint, by the way. This is not stoned talk. She says, I think that the world is getting old and that Ennis is where the fabric of old things is coming apart at the seams. Right? Mm. The seams where you go mining for whatever it is they're mining for in Ennis. Isn't that absolutely fantastic that in some way Ennis might be this like portal place that the lads underneath beavering around and beavering around under, under the ground are in some way tearing apart the fabric of the world. It's coming apart at the seams quite literally. I absolutely love this kind of thing, Dave. Yeah, I love this whole scene. I thought this scene was really informative. There was moments of humour in it. We learned a lot more about Navarro, about her family, like you said, about her sister and her mental health problems, like the mother and her problems. We learned about Rose. We learned about Rose's relationship with Travis. And obviously, like you said, we learned Travis's first name. But the, the line that really got me was... Does Travis come around often? And Rose said, death didn't change him. I just thought that's a brilliant line. Yes. Because because so often when people die, people create this idea of what they were when they were alive. And you've seen it. I've seen it. We we both know our souls who've passed away and everybody rushes to say what a great guy they were. But they weren't. They were an arsehole. Just because they're dead doesn't stop them being an arsehole. (laughs) Travis was a rolling stone, which fits very well in again with with Russ, because like you said, Rust, Rust was talking about having spent time there, not lived there, spent time there. Because Travis was a visitor, he would pass through the area. So that line, death didn't change him like it's such an Irish line as well. Yeah, it really did. That, That line kind of stuck at me. And then. You find out how he died. He died of leukemia. And you get just those little small bits of information. So you're now building more of a an idea of the character of Travis. And then, like you said, also the link back to season one, where I think you're right. I think he likely is Rust's father or potentially an older brother who maybe looked after him when he was young. You know, again, we'll find out a bit more, but... Yeah, I, I thought that scene was such a was such a strong opening scene as like obviously we, we had the the opening bit, then the, the the music and the credits, and then we go into that, and I do think it, it really did set the show off on a good foot. It gets even better though, doesn't it, when they go outside? Because mm. now we reintroduce this incredibly powerful motif of the swirl, the swirl that we mentioned last week, which connected to season one because it was on the back of the first victim. It was also um, uh, tattooed on the big bad guy's uh, body as well. And at one point, if people remember, it's one of the most famous stills from True Detective One. Rust looks up at the sky. And the birds form into that exact swirl pattern. It's a brilliant shot. You look it up on uh, anywhere on Google, you'll see it right now. This means, this talks to you about 
something other than nuts and bolts reality, that there is something happening there, that nature is being impacted by some sort of a dark force. That is what is being suggested by that. I don't think we're supposed to think that's in Rust's mind. I don't think at all we're supposed to think that. And here, as they exit Rose's house, um, the discussion about the swirl comes up. Um, we learn later on that it was on Clark's chest that he got it tattooed. We know mm. that it was on the on the forehead of one of the victims. And um, Rose draws it into the snow um, to illustrate uh, for Navarro. And you know what's really interesting, Dave? She immediately rubs it out because she does not want that shit etched into the snow she outside says of her house. outside of her house i think uh, that was such a little throwaway detail that i thought was so powerful she says about this world uh, it's old missy older than ennis older mm. than the ice probably i just thought well yeah. we're we're in it now we're in it now you know yeah if you, you, you got it you've you've got to buy in at this point you have to you have to and like the date again that's such a powerful line. It's older than Ennis. It's older than the, probably than the ice, just giving you an idea of the depth of this story, the depth of the belief in this, the, the symbology. What it, it, it is. And, and like you said, like we, the links, the, the very clear links to, uh, to season one and, and that infamous scene where he's leaning against his car and the, the birds form into the spiral like it is kind of a shivers kind of moment oh it genuinely is and we're not done with the spiral yet before the end of our show here in our recap we're gonna to have to pick select selected bits i think the, the we've already touched on the interesting uh relationship with uh the uh, Connolly, um, played by Christopher Eccleston, mm. uh, he's 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 carrying a bit of timber, Christopher, for the first time in his career. I've never seen him um, uh, on the heavier side, uh, but he's very he's a very charismatic actor. Carries the role very well. It's a bit unfortunate for uh, Chris. He's like I say, a, a combination of whatever few pounds he he's got on him at the moment and a really shit haircut. He looks very like Michael Rappaport. He needs to do something about that. It's not yeah. good. It's not no. a good look for him at all. Ne- never go full Rappaport. Never go full Rappaport. But again, we see a, a very, uh, very um, on-message, true detective sex scene between himself and Jody, uh, looking, uh, she, looking very well for herself. God bless her. And it, it's it's quite raunchy in the in the true detective style, as you would expect. Um, and that. I love the way in a matter of seconds it goes from the sublime connection of sexual gratification to her slamming the door and saying fucker <laughs> and leaving it off and leaving it off because he's just pissed her off uh, and he doesn't rate her as highly as she would like to be rated and that's clearly a bone of contention there she obviously feels that he has uh, dumped her in this place uh, which would explain her wanting to hold on to the case. We also meet Kate McKittrick, a name that was mentioned last week, who just so happens to have an Irish link here. Uh, old Bally Cassandra star, Dervla Kerwin, who I wasn't expecting to pop up with you. No, no, I, I didn't have, I didn't have any idea that she had been cast in the show. And uh, again, like you said, she's a, she's a big Irish favorite. She's someone that was a, a massive star here in the, in the nineties and, you know, has sort of flitted in and out of of relevance. Um, she's done a lot of stage work, to my knowledge, 
and not necessarily chase the fame as she probably could have done. But she's always a very, very solid presence and always gives a very good performance. And, and this this is no no difference, to be fair, no different, to be fair. And Kate has something in common with a lot of people and that she absolutely hates Liz because Liz has slept with her husband. Yeah. <laughs> this is because this of course is, she has. This is absolutely fantastic. So many little we, things. I'm, we I, did I, get another little nugget here, though. Oh, go on. Maybe yeah. something into into Pryor's background. Yeah. Uh, Kate McKittrick's two sons are ice hockey players. And she says to the older Pryor about getting Peter to teach them more about skating. So maybe there's something there with him where maybe he's a, a failed ice hockey player or something, or maybe there's something that's held him back into the region, which we don't know about yet. I just oh, thought it was interesting that she did point that, or she did ask about him giving the kids lessons in skating. So what's his expertise in that field? Because we, we haven't seen him skate yet. We haven't seen any mention of it yet. So I, I did just think that was kind of an interesting little drop. I love that, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll see your 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 observation that I missed, and I'll raise you later on. He's talking to Leah, the adopted daughter of Danvers, and he says something along the lines of, that really sticks with you, doesn't it, not being good enough? And I wonder if mm. that's what he's talking about. Maybe yeah. you're onto something there, Chief. Yeah, Maybe you're onto possible. something there. So there's so much stuff we want to get through. I'm just very painfully aware we want to keep it to about 10 more minutes. So with that in mind, let's just hit off the major things. Bear with me for a minute as I as I, as I I touch a few of the major uh, points. There's a really strong sequence where Navarro's driving her car and the Spice Girls are playing and she rings her sister because it's a flashback to them as young, uh, being younger. And mm. as the music plays, she seems to discover um, a crucifix on a, on a chain and the sight of it brings back a flashback to her and her sister huddling in fear as her mother screeches. And we obviously have a trauma there in her past that we're being made aware of. Oddly, she throws the crucifix out the window, which I would imagine has added symbol symbolism that we don't have time to go into now, but it's an interesting one. Feel free to just make a mental note if you want to refer to any of these things again. When she went, when um, Navarro goes to see the friend of Annie's brother who wrecked the picture of Clark earlier on and then pretended he didn't. She has an opportunity to put him under pressure because he was involved in a, a sort of a scrap in Kavik Steiner. Mm. So he could be arrested. So she has him over a barrel and he admits that, yes, I sold Clark, who's the missing member of the corpsicle. Um, I sold him a, 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 a trailer and we start to put it together. Clark has been behaving very weirdly, uh, talking to himself, wandering around naked, um, upsetting everybody. The cleaning ladies feel sorry for him. His friends don't interject, which they find very sad and tragic. They just leave him to his own sort of sadness and oddness. He's the guy we saw in the pink parka, which was... Um, the coat that was very like the one that Annie Kay used to have. Uh, he's wearing that in that opening sequence where I mentioned um, he's shaken and he says she's awake. That's Clark. He is missing. He's the one then who this guy says bought a trailer off his brother or friend or whatever it was. Uh, he had 10 grand handy to buy it. And mm. he was using it as a rendezvous point for his sexual relationship. We assume with Annie. Now lots going on there in that, 
scene where he's t- uh, Navarro's talking, quizzing that guy up. There's some posters behind um, him, and I-, I thought they looked a bit odd. And I-, I-, I went and looked them up afterwards, and they're like shitty AI creations. And I don't know what that's trying to tell us. Maybe it's just bad set dressing. I'm not sure, but I said I'd mention it. It's odd. Um, we also have what appears to be Hank Pryor's mail order Russian bride. Yeah, I love this. Who seems to be milking him for money for any the poor sap he's seems to be definitely just, getting scammed. But he's my getting favorite scammed, part of this whole thing, Trev. <laughs> she says to him, "Send me more pictures of you." So he takes his phone and he takes pictures of pictures in his house. She's clearly asking for pictures of him, like as in take a selfie. And he's walking around the dopey old fool taking pictures of the pictures he has framed in his gaff. I just thought that was brilliant, but he is 100% getting scammed. Ah, uh, God love, God love him. Uh, yeah, but it's hard to feel too sorry for Hank because we see uh, Leah refers to him as an animal for 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 what he he does and has done in the past to Peter. Mm. He seems to be a physically abusive type of chap. So there's obviously more tragedy and drama there. It just tells you don't live in this place. It seems really dark. Um, there are other bits and bobs as well. Like we, the Danvers follows up with a tattoo artist who put the tattoo on uh, Clark's chest. And he's, she's able to supply Danvers with a photo, which proves that her, that he and Annie were in a relationship. Um, so and Annie, if, if I can just jump there. I'm yeah, wondering. please do. So a little bit earlier than that, um, they're talking about Clark and his, and one of them says, I spoke to his mother in Dublin. Yeah. So you've got Ennis in in Alaska. We have an Ennis obviously here in Clare. Then she says Dublin, and I was like, "Oh, is there a Dublin in Alaska?" And I made a note to look it up later on, thinking, assuming he's actually from Alaska. But then when she speaks to the tattooist, the tattooist said, "Oh, he's English, yeah." And she goes, "No, he's Irish." So it's Dublin here that they're referring to. She spoke to the mother here. So I just thought that was an interesting little thing. Of course, the English, yeah, that did rile me a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you know, <laughs> what better way to poke the Irish bear than to refer to us as English? Poke no offense to any English person. It's just, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. Um, poke, poke the one-eyed Irish polar bear. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, there are two more things I want to head off before we finish, and then I'll let you wrap it up with any of your uh, outstanding thoughts or things you, th- you feel you need to. So we, 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 like I said, the tattooist says he can supply the photos and, and Danvers can see that there he is. He's got it on his chest and he's got it on her back. Uh, it's obviously a massive deal. And Navarro independently has discovered the trailer and you can see the kind of, respect for each other uh, that they have uh, in this scene here because they both sort of independently have come uh, by process of proper detective work to further jumps in the case and they end up there at the trailer and um, 
we'll, we'll go in there in a minute and talk about that. But I just thought that was really nice because, you know, there's a throwaway line. Like, how did you how did you know to come here? And uh, Navarro says, oh, my spirit animal showed me in a dream, you know, kind of taking the piss out of, oh, yeah, I'm sure we're all cookie, um, supernatural people around here. Uh, whereas, no, I just use good old fashioned detective work. And good old fashioned detective work that you taught me. That, that you Bruce. taught me, right? I, I, I love that. I thought that was a really nice... You know what? The more I talk to you about this, I don't give a shit what anyone says. This is really well put together, this story. The last thing I want to talk to you about is this little area, the nook, where the um, uh, trailer is. Uh, it was where apparently the Clark and Annie used to carry on their liaisons. But when we get in there, Jesus Christ, if you ever wanted a flashback to season one, here it is. There are all sorts of season one-y things dangling down, all these little dolls, all these uh, remnants of bones over on tables and, and servers and counters. And there's a, there's dust over everything. All these, like I say, things hanging down with sort of witchy looks about them, definitely sort of occulty looks to them. And then he pu- she pulls back a curtain and we see a life-size doll on a bed, which seems to have a child-size doll beside it. Mm. This, this is obviously going to be relevant later on. And, that scene in and of itself is quite dark. We see some journals, which again have echoes of seven to them. All these words crammed in. I was very tempted. You know me, Dave, the nerd in me was saying, I got to freeze frame this and read all of that. I stopped myself doing, I read some of them, the references to her eyes and her face dark and stuff like that. And Oh God, never sleep is another line that I saw. This is obviously perhaps just the ramblings of a very disturbed person in Clark or is it Annie's? We don't know what this is, but the journals are there. And as we exit that scene, and this is where I'm going to leave my assessment, there's a ram's head that we see. Mm. It's obviously got overt occult connotations. A bird hung upside down. And in the background, a really jarring sound of a male voice screaming. In in some sort of distress, it doesn't seem to fit, and we wonder: Is this Clark? Have we suddenly been transferred to where transferred to where Clark is? Is he suffering? What's going on? That's only my take. So, take us home with your wrap up. So, on the the scene in the caravan, the doll on the bed looks like a mummy. And from the American naturalist in August of nineteenth. Seven, sorry, 1875, volume nine of the American Naturalist, there is a story by W. H. Dahl called Alaskan Mummies. So I wonder, <laughs> is it some Love sort it. of link to that? Love um, it. Potentially Love just a troll to that. A couple of other things. <clears throat> um, the scene with Pryor and Leah, where they're talking, there's there's certain ways the camera cuts on Pryor when he laughs, when he dips his head, when he turns. And for some reason, he just reminds me of a young Goodwill hunting era Matt Damon. Yeah, very much. Yeah. Yeah. Just a throwaway. Um, Danvers goes to visit Navarro in her home. We find Navarro li- we, lives in this rural kind of place. It doesn't look like a house as she approaches it. This is her home. Danvers appears to visit her. She's putting away her shopping and Danvers decides to help out. And she asks her, did you change where you put the cans? Showing familiarity with that yeah. kitchen, that home. 
So is there more to this that we don't know? Is there more to this relationship that we don't know? Um, but the scene for me that really I, I just I loved was Pryor and the delivery man sitting in the lorry having a conversation. He goes to interview the delivery guy. And there's there's three lines that just are absolutely brilliant. One you've mentioned, this is Ennis, you see people. It's phenomenal. The next one, which was actually one of the first ones that he said was, the delivery guy said this. He was talking about the people out in the research center. Spend your life out there locked up in the ice. And I just thought there's a wonderful irony to that because you're all doing that. You Mm. all live on the ice. Mm. You all live in the middle of nowhere. But then the last one, which I just think is genius, and it's right, it's, it's right up there with death didn't change him. He says, it's a long fucking night. Even the dead get bored. Oh, I just well, thought, it's yeah. brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. It's perfectly delivered. And it just, it, it sums up what we're talking about here with the kind of supernatural element and the potential activity that may come down the line. So I, I just, I thought this episode was was genuinely outstanding television. I'm not comparing it to season one because I don't think we should do that. I think season one is its own being. It's its own body of work. It's one of the great bodies of work in the history of television. This should not be compared to it. This shouldn't be compared to anything else. Just compare it to what it, or look at it as it is, judge it as it is for what it's giving you. I think we're genuinely getting an outstanding series and, I thought this episode continued the the slow thaw to to you know to coin a phrase given what they're doing with the, <laughs> the icicle uh, rather than a slow burn. Um, it continued that, but at the same time, it opened the story out quite a bit. We got a lot of new information. We learned quite a lot about a number of characters. We met Navarro's sister. You know, we find out a bit about her before we meet her. Then we meet her. Then we see the dynamic between her and Navarro. And obviously there's more to come from that. We see Navarro has the, the uh, this relationship with, um, with Eddie, which is similar to the relationship Danvers has with, well, seemingly three or four different people. And uh, again, I think you know, these are all important things to keep track of as this show goes on. A couple of loose ends to tie up that I should have mentioned. One of the questions I asked at the end of the last episode was, why does Liz hate the Beatles twist and shed so much? And we mm. get the answer because we see a flashback to where she's sharing a happy moment with her son, Holden, um, with some very good de-aging work done on Jody, And that's playing in the background. So obviously these are memories that she's trying to drown out. And the other thing I loved about that scene you were talking about where she's asking, where do, where, where do I put the cans? That familiarity, I just put down to the fact that they used to work closely together and actually had this tie together until whatever was the Wheeler thing, which they mentioned. Uh, and the Wheeler thing is obviously the bone of contention about whatever happened between them. Not so much it looks like the Annie case. She, Navarro mentions that and Liz just shuts her down. And the last thing I wanted to mention, uh, if you're looking for an insult uh, to throw out when you're very pissed off uh, at someone, laundromat grandma 
is just about as good as it gets. <laughs> she, she, Liz just in a moment, and you can see immediately she she regrets it. She hates herself for saying it. She understands what a bitch she is to have come out with it to an old lady who's simply trying to be kind to her uh, stepdaughter or adopted daughter. But yeah, she can't help herself. I love it. I, it, I love that as well because because the the uh, the victim of said line was speaking in English. And then was so appalled by what she'd been called. She just refused to speak English after that and just started <laughs> ranting away in her native tongue, which I just thought was great. And I, I love the fact that they've gone and they've gotten, you know, the, the kind of correct people to play these type of roles. People that act, that don't look like they're just staged in makeup that aren't, you know, you know, we don't have an Asian person pretending to be, uh, you know, a, a native we have actual people that are of the culture and playing the roles more naturally. Absolutely. And the show ends with the corpsicle thawing to echo your point from earlier on and the revelation that Clark is missing and to quote out there. So the game is as, as, uh, as Sherlock Holmes would say a foot. And as this, as the episode finishes, we've got Florence singing seven devils, make of that what you will interesting it's just there for you i'm still hung up on this ram's head and that scream i want to know what's going on there are so many questions that were left about dave and i will be back to endeavor to answer as many as we can oh yeah it was annie's tongue we found out at salal as well yeah. just for added a uh, little bit of um intrigue so yeah as usual left with more questions than answers but they have begun to answer some of our previous questions so i think that's a sign of a good piece of tv and dave and i will be back with you to talk about episode three and answer the key questions will kavik get his toothbrush back what will laundromat grandma do by way of revenge and who are we going to discover that liz is shagged next we'll be back with you so thanks to you for your attention and from me and from dave and from buzz good luck Podcast Network.